Oh my goodness, I love our worship. That was awesome. I enjoyed it. Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of John chapter 4, and we'll get started really quick. John chapter 4. Now, I will tell you, you've probably never heard of the name Francis Green, but what you will know is the person she got the privilege to meet. Francis Green was a 83-year-old widow who lived in San Francisco, California. Okay, so a little bit away from here. And for eight years straight, she had faithfully sent in exactly $1 a year to the Republican National Convention. Now, one day when she went out to her mail, she found this incredibly beautiful letter. The writing was engraved in gold. It was just this amazing stock and the feel of it. and even had the presidential seal. It was a personal invitation to the White House to meet President Ronald Reagan. Now, what she didn't notice is that this was actually a campaign, uh, kind of a fundraiser thing. And at the bottom, it said you're supposed to RSVP with a check of $10,000. <laughs> she missed that. Anyway, so she decided, absolutely, I'm going to do this. And so she gathered the, the few things that she had. She didn't have a lot, but she had one outfit. And it was this uh, older white suit that had kind of, you know, yellowed with age. And, and this patent leather shoes that were white to match, patent leather white purse, and a hat that goes with it. And she got a ticket. She couldn't fly. She couldn't afford that. So she got on a train. She couldn't afford a sleeper. So she rode in coach for three days across the country in the same outfit just to meet Ronald Reagan. Now, when she got to D.C., she got off. And the, and the main plan was to get there, go straight to the White House, be there right on time, meet the president, shake his hand, get back on the train and go. Okay, that was what she wanted to do. But when she gets in line, she works her way through, she gets to the guard, and there's the Secret Service agent right there, and he asks her name, and she said, of course, Francis Green. And he said, I'm sorry, but your name's not on here. So she, I mean, she loses it. There's no, there's no way. There has to be a mistake. And before she can say anything else, the guard says, man, this is the White House. We don't make those kind of mistakes. Now, behind her was an executive from the Ford Motor Company, okay, and he kind of heard what was going on. He asked her to come to the side, and it took about five minutes before he realized the incredible confusion and what had happened. And he said, Francis, look, I'm so sorry about this misunderstanding. Make me a promise. Get a hotel, motel, whatever you can tonight. Meet me here tomorrow at 9 a.m. I will get you in to see the president. If not the president, at least the White House, but I'll get you in. And he said, okay. So she got a little $12 motel, stayed there that night. Came back, same outfit, right there, 8.45, made sure she was early. And she met the executive from Ford, and she also met a lady named Ann Higgins, who was kind of the chief of the staff throughout the White House at that point. And so she says, you know, I'm very sorry. Uh, previously, they, they were told the president was going to be able to meet with them, but unfortunately, the, the day had kind of gotten a little hectic. You see, this was right at the time during the invasion of Grenada, Grenada, however you say it, and also, the uh, attorney general that very same day had just resigned. So he was just slammed, right? And he said, I won't be able to meet with her today. So Ann tells him that, but says, don't worry, we're going to give you a tour. And then Francis responds, no, 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 I will meet President Reagan. He gave me his word. I will see him. <laughs> okay. And onward they go. So they went through the White House, and they really tried to, you know, do something special for her. They took her into, like, the behind-the-scenes things that most of the tour groups didn't even get to see. But every 30 minutes or so, Francis would look at Anne and say, so when do I get to meet President, the President Reagan? 
uh, he's not going to be able to do that. Oh, no, he gave me his word. I'll see him. Oh, okay, well, on where we go. So it went on, and then after about the fifth or sixth time of asking, the executive said, look, I don't think we're leaving here without at least getting a glimpse of the guy, okay? So let's do this. Can you take us just past the Oval Office, just like, you know, kind of the outside area? Maybe she can get a glimpse of President Reagan, possibly, okay? And so, sure, fine. So as they're walking by, they're right there at the entrance of the Oval Office. There's like a little foyer area, and then there's the entrance itself. And out walk two five-star generals. In walks two senators. And as the door's opening, you can see the president right there at his desk, just surrounded by people. And he looks up, and he catches her eye. Now, the story comes uh, from Becky Nunes. She was a reporter at that time in her uh, book called Character Above All. And what she retells happened next amazed everybody. President Reagan looked up. He saw who was at the door, and he just lifted his hands in the air and said, Francis, oh, my goodness, I'm so happy you could be here. He left his desk. Everyone was just standing there. It didn't matter what conversation was happening. He walked the entire way calling out her name. Oh, Francis, I'm so happy to see you. I can't believe my guards made that mistake. It's these dumb computers. They don't know what they're talking about. That letter was written personally from me to you. I wanted you here. He grabs her by the arm, sits down with her, and he just talks to her about the Bay Area and all he remembered from when he lived in Hollywood and things of that nature because he was an actor. He gave her 11 minutes, 11 minutes, more time than he gave world leaders that day. He gave to this 83-year-old widow. Why? Well, Becky Nunez writes, and she says, he did not give her this, his time, because she could do him any favors or it would bring him any advantage. But he knew in his heart that he alone was someone that can meet a need in her life to feel loved. And so he did. He shocked the world by caring about someone that no one else cared about for 11 minutes. Can I be honest? I love our church. I think we have some of the best programs in town. I really do. I think our worship is awesome, and I love listening to our worship, worship service. I think we're doctrinally we're great. Our preaching, except for yours included, is awesome. Okay, so, but here's the realities. There's nothing here that comparable to what the world can offer somebody is really all that impressive, right? We have nice buildings. The world has better. We have speakers that I love to hear. The world has better speakers. On and on. I mean, look. Weston's not John Mayer, okay? Like, I love him, but it's just not there. Anyway, but seriously, whatever I have to offer in those tangible things, it's not anything that sets us apart. But what does set Christianity apart is what Christ displays in John chapter 4, and that's love. And I'm not talking about what we usually call love, brotherly love or uh, a, just kind of an intimate relational love. I'm talking about a real agape love that shocks the world. In fact, the love of Christ is so important in the life of the Christian that Jesus himself said, how everybody in the world is going to know you're my disciple is by how you love one another. 
That's going to be it. That's what's going to set you apart. The proprietary notion, this is what Charles Spurgeon says, the proprietary notion of the church is the love of Christ expressed to man. In our passage, we find a woman who was loved by no one, but found love at the feet of Christ. And it changed her life forever. Now, here's the problem. We talk about loving others. We talk about the love of Christ. We talk about how we're supposed to, to live out love. But what does that look like? So for a few moments, we're going to read a story. I've entitled it, I've entitled it Surprised by Love because that's what she was. That's what everyone was. Surprised by the amount of love that he showed her. We're going to read this story and we're going to learn what it looks like. We're going to learn why we do it and what are the effects. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to read your word and to spend time worshiping you and growing together. I desperately need your help. Lord, I ask you to hide me behind the cross and speak through me and use me. Let me only say that which is true, which is right, which is your will. And Lord, I pray that even though I'm not the best at this, I pray you use my words anyway. And I pray you touch our hearts that we may leave different than we, when we came in. In your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though he himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. Now let's, let's pause here. We're going to kind of go verse by verse and unpack it. So understand that in the Jewish mindset, this was under the Roman rule, so it was in the province of Palestine. Palestine was divided into three separate sections. There was Galilee, Judea, and Samaria. In the south was Judea, and the north was Galilee. Smack dab in the middle, that was Samaria. Okay, now there's a lot of history there. Okay? The Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. Okay, so to imagine it this way, it would kind of be like this. You have West Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, East Tennessee. And so if someone said, I hate everybody in Middle Tennessee, I don't know why we're wonderful people, but let's say they did. I hate everybody in Middle Tennessee. In fact, they hate them so much that they say, I'm going to go from Memphis to Knoxville. The usual course of events would be that they drive from Memphis as far as they could to right till they get to the border of Middle Tennessee, then they go north to Kentucky. Drive all the way to Lexington, back down to Knoxville, that's their normal route. That sounds like me driving. But, okay, the reality was is that there was so much hatred between these two people that most rabbis, most Jewish people refused to walk through Samaria. So even though it was a three-day journey through Samaria, instead they would make it a six- to seven-day journey and go around it. That was the hatred there. So here's Jesus. I have to go to Galilee. I'm in Judea. I have to go north. But he takes the quickest and also the most unusual route. He said that he had to travel through Samaria. That word had in, in, in that tense was more of a desire than it was of a necessity of having to go through there. There was a purpose to his movement. Point number one, I want you to understand that love out of necessity will cross boundaries. You see what do you mean? Well, Let's look at all the boundaries, all the rules that Jesus is going to break for his society. One, he's going into Samaria. The Samaritans and Jews hated each other because in 729 B.C. the Assyrians conquered. 
They took all the rich people out of, of Judea, of Jerusalem and all that, and they brought in people from other cultures, and they began to mix, right? And so like half Jewish, half wherever else you were, they weren't just missing race necessarily, but they were mis- mixing religion. They were bringing in new festivals, new traditions, new spiritualities, and it became kind of a different religion where it was a combination of paganism and Judaism. And that's what the Samaritans did, and they kind of spread, and then the Jews came back under Persia, and they hated each other ever since. So he's crossing into a land where he's hated. He's crossing social lines, political lines, and he's decided that he's now going to undertake something that no rabbi of his time will, and that's trying to actually make his way through Samaria without getting into a fight of some sort, okay? Now, he had to travel through Samaria, so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. So this is important. Where are they at? So if you know the word Sychar, it's also Shechem. Okay? So Abraham went to Shechem, met with God. God told him he'll be the father of many nations. I find it kind of interesting, just as a rabbit trail, that he was promised to be the father of many nations, plural, and then here's Jesus bringing in another nation through the gospel. That's awesome. But anyway, so he's there at Shechem. This was a, a kind of a sacred land. But Shechem, or Sychar, was about a half a mile removed from where Jacob's well is, okay, roughly. And so he gets there, there's a town, and he stops at this well, he says, I'm just too tired, and his disciples go on. Well, why is that important? Well, because Sychar had water. It actually had like an aqueduct system. The water was more easily accessible. It was in abundance there. But he stops at a well that's basically a giant cistern. It's very difficult to get down into and actually get the water from. But he's waiting there. So let me put it this way. He inconvenienced himself. It made much more sense for him to actually go the extra half mile and get provision there. But he stops at this well. Why? Well, because he knows who's coming, right? So he stops at this well, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Okay, so these are more red flags. First off, it's noon. It's hot. It's the desert. Women generally didn't come to get water at noon. They either came early in the morning or later in the evening. It was weird that she's coming at this time. Secondly, she's also walking half a mile away from water. That's weird. No one does this, and she's by herself. Usually they would go in groups of women because it was a social thing. My wife calls it girls' days out. I call it losing money. Either way, I'm going to get in trouble. Anyway, so nonetheless, she came by herself half a mile away in the heat of the day, really not expecting to see anybody. Why would someone do this? probably because of who they were and the reputation they had. This woman obviously did not want to talk to anybody and most certainly did not want to be around anybody. She just wasn't who you would associate with. Now, Jesus is getting ready. When she, when she comes, he's getting ready in the next verse to actually start a conversation. That's a big deal. You say, why? Well, because rabbis don't talk to women in public. In fact, if you study the Pharisees, uh, Pharisees' tradition, most of the time they would not talk to their wife, their sisters, or their mothers in public. I've tried it. I, that's not a good idea, but they did it, okay? Just kidding. But 
The reality is they actually would even go so far, they had a group called the bloodied and bruised Pharisees, that if they saw a woman coming, they would close their eyes and try not to even look at her, and then they would fall off something or actually hit a wall, and they literally were bloodied and bruised. So for him to actually have a conversation with this woman is extremely taboo. So he's crossing social, political, gender lines, conventional lines, to talk to a woman that no one else cares about. To actually carry on a conversation with someone that most people don't even want to associate with on a day-to-day basis. That's because he loved her enough that all those little barriers didn't matter. He was willing to go ahead and inconvenience himself, throw his schedule off, do the harder thing just to speak with her. He said, okay, what, what are you getting at? Here's what bothers me. Love in action has no boundaries. But I feel like so often in my own life, ours does. I feel like we're too busy. That's a boundary. We, we have our little schedules. We have our plans. And we just don't have time to sit down and actually try to impact somebody's life. I feel like so often we're just running around and we're too busy talking about the problems in our society instead of actually trying to fix the problems in our society by loving those who need it. We can talk about Planned Parenthood all day long. When's the last time that we actually got an unwed teenage mother and tried to make her feel important and realize that she had other options? See, there's a difference between criticizing and loving. Between going ahead and reaching out and saying, you know, you've done wrong, you've done wrong, you've done wrong, and putting ourselves in a place as judge as opposed to actually reaching out and trying to make a difference in their life. We've got so many boundaries on who we'll associate with and who we won't that we've missed the whole point of what Christianity is about. Last night, Nashville was up in riots. And all we can do is talk about how wrong they were when we realize that the whole problem So we haven't been doing our job. You see, society's problems can easily be fixed if we as Christians would actually reach out and make an impact in an individual's life. But we're too busy. And I was preparing this message. Honestly, I got convicted. I get it. I work two jobs. I had my little girl's birthday party last night. Of course, family stays way too late. And so we were up late, Addie gets up at four, I've got to get this message ready, we're getting ready to go on vacation. I found out I have like five minutes on Tuesday. I think then I'll try to, you know, tell somebody I love them, right? Like, I I think that'll work in my schedule. But that's not how Christianity should be. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, go ahead and get ready for your whole life, your whole schedule, all your plans to pretty much get wrecked. Because it's not about you. It's about making an impact. I remember, if you think about it, and this is more personal. So my mom, single mom, right? 90% of single parents, or actually that's conservative, most of us have hired about 95 to 98% of single parent homes don't go to church anywhere. They just don't. Because it feels awkward. They don't feel like they have friends. They don't know who to talk 
and so they'd stay away. I wasn't old enough to remember. All I remember is what my sister tells me. She said this lady came into our life, and then spankings came along with it. Okay, so that's all I know, all right? But the reality is there was a lady at a church who knocked on our door, introduced herself to my mom, and my world was forever changed. I've never known anything different because someone took five minutes instead of complaining about homes falling apart to reach out to a home that already did. And it changed my life. Whose life are you changing this week? Who have you reached out to? If you're too busy to try to go ahead and pour into the life of someone else, you're too busy. Our calling as a church, as Blackman Baptist Church, is to reach out to those around us and love them and to break down any barrier in the way. We're not called to judge. We're called to love. But why? Let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone to the town to buy food. She looks at him and says, how do you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And this is true. First off, can I pause here and say I, I love this woman because she's really kind of spunky? Because most of the time, if a man spoke to a woman, they would not speak back. But she's like, oh, no, you didn't. All right, so. Now, Jesus answered and said, now, if you knew the gift of God and who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Okay, so. This is all kind of tongue-in-cheek, but Jesus is, is making an analogy, right? And he's, he's kind of setting her up. She's taking it very literal. He is not, but he knows she is. So he says, look, if, if you can give me a drink of water, she says, why are you talking to me? And he says, okay, well, how about this? If, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask, and I would give you fresh water. You see, the cistern, how it got its water, how Jacob's well got its water is one of two ways. It has a groove kind of chiseled down in it, so when the occasional rainwater comes in, it kind of accumulates in a pond underneath. Secondly, they dig it low enough, and they get, dig it uh, as a kind of a chasm, so that when the heat and the cold air mix together, condensation forms, and it makes a big pool as well, and it just sits there. So it's kind of stagnant, it's nasty, but it's drinkable. All right, that, That's what this well was. Now, Jesus looks at her and says, what I'm going to offer you is living water, moving water, fresh water, something different, something better, something clean, way better. And she looks at him in the next verse, and just for the sake of time, she says, basically, are you better than Jacob? She says, Jacob, our father, dig, dig, uh, dug this well. So you're obviously better than Jacob because he had to make this well, but you found some spring water that he didn't even know about. And Jesus keeps talking, and, he's, and she says, uh, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God who's saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. And she says, okay, fine, give me this water, in verse number 15, that I don't have to come back here again. Now this is when the analogy changes, and she realizes what he's saying. The following verse, verse 15, uh, 16, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Now up to this point, it's been this back and forth, right? 
They've been talking. She doesn't care. She keeps talking back and forth, back and forth they go. Then finally something completely changes in her demeanor because he says, hey, go get your husband. Bring him back here. I'll give you the magic water. And she just says, I don't have a husband. Done. Short, sweet, to the point, stop talking to me. I think he hit a nerve. He said, you said correctly, I don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands, and the man that you're now with is not your husband. So yeah, what you've said is true. Oh, so that's why you came to the well by yourself. Yeah. You see, Jesus didn't ignore the sin, but he has a solution. Because this is where the analogy comes to point. See, here's what Jesus was really saying. He wasn't talking about spring water. What he was really saying to the woman is, aren't you tired of coming to the same broken well and never being satisfied? Aren't you sick of trying to seek out whatever placebo effect you get from running around with every person that you can and ending up still being here all alone? I have something way better for you. And I promise you'll never want those old habits again. You'll leave them. Because this will satisfy. Wow. You see, Augustine, I say Augustine, all right, not, I don't know how anyone else would pronounce it, Augustine, no, Augustine. Anyway, Augustine puts it this way, he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. What's he mean? Well, theologically speaking, God is love. So when mankind rebelled against God, we literally rebelled against the source of love itself. But there's this hole in our heart. We were made to worship our king. And instead of seeking out God, we seek out other devices to try to fill that hole. And it never satisfies. We're always left in. So when you look at a broken and ruined life, it's not somebody that we should sit back and just say that they've made a mess of themselves, they ought to pick themselves up and fix it. They can't. But we have the solution. You see, the love of Christ fulfills that need so that they have no other. But the problem is is that we, by God's grace, have experienced the grace and the love of Christ, but are we giving it back out? It's kind of like a man who knows a cure for cancer and doesn't tell anybody. (laughs) Pretty much the worst human being on the planet, right? Well, we've got a broken society full of broken people, and all they need is the love of Christ in their life. But are we telling anybody? Are we too busy? Are we too caught up with whatever barrier it is? You see, the reason that we share that love is because it's what they really need, and they don't even know it yet. They can't. But then the main question behind all that is this. Why would we do it? What effect takes place? Well, that's why I like it a lot. So her and Jesus, they have this discussion about worship, and we've covered that a lot in in Sunday school during the curriculum, so I'm going to kind of skip over the unpacking all those verses. That's another sermon for another time. But we'll jump down to verse number 28, and it says, Then the woman left her water jar and went to town 
and told the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, huge offense. Because what happened next is they left town and made their way to him. Samaritan town coming to see a Jewish Messiah. All right, that, it, it was unheard of. In the meantime, the disciples kept uh, urging him, Rabbi, eat something. He said, I've got food to eat. The disciples didn't know what he was talking about. And we come to a really famous verse. He says, open your eyes and you'll see the harvest. We've, we use, I've, I've seen that verse used so many times at missions conferences or uh, at different churches who are approaching some sort of evangelistic thing. There's a harvest, there's a harvest, there's a harvest. But what was the context of that verse? Well, remember, the disciples had just gone to that same town with the same knowledge that Christ was the Messiah and brought no one. No one. All this woman said is, hey, I met this guy. He told me everything I did that was bad. I'm pretty sure he's the Messiah. You might want to come meet him. And they came running. The disciples had already seen miracles had already seen God moving, had already knew in their hearts that this was the Messiah, and they went into a town full of people who didn't know it and brought nothing back. Hmm. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish this work, Jesus told them, don't say. Now, that's imperative. He's not saying that this, he's basically giving a command. What you this is what you just did don't ever do it again. Don't say, there's still four months, then comes harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ready for harvest. He's saying this as a full town of people are coming to him. And they could probably see him. Now, I can't prove this completely. But what I imagine is at that moment when he says, look, he turns them around and says, no, look, they were there, and you missed it. You missed it. They're ready now. And all it took was a little bit of love. Just a little. This guy by the name of Doug Nichols. Doug Nichols was a young guy, and he was um, out this is, uh, back in the early 1800s, late, late, or early 1900s, late 1800s. And he was at a conference at an evangelistic crusade, and he was a single guy, and he heard, uh, you know, this call, you know, to go into all the world. He felt very convicted, and so he decided, that's what I'm going to do. So he went ahead, he sold everything he had, uh, he loaded up, and he, what he did was, I, I'm probably not the best tactic, he just kind of said, hey, look, I'll learn the language as I get there. We'll just kind of sh you know, shoot for it. And so he just got as much literature as he could in the language of, of India that he was going through. It was that particular dialect. He loads up. He heads on his way there, and he's just struggling, right? He's doing everything he can. He's got brochures. He's got books. He's got everything you can imagine trying to hand it out. No missionary had ever gone there, and he's having absolutely zero success, getting nowhere. Very strong Hindu uh, very difficult to even just get someone to give him the time of day. He's there for about three weeks, and he comes down with an acute case of tuberculosis. Back then, probably not going to make it. 
So they put him in a sanitarium, which is basically a big rounded room where you and about you know, 100 other sick people are all within three feet of each other just laying there. Most of the time when you went into those places, whatever you went in with didn't kill you. You got something else from the guy in the next bed, and that killed you, right? So he's sitting there. He's miserable. But he said he brought two suitcases full of info. And he's going to try to give them out to doctors, nurses, patients. And he said it just got worse. He said, finally, one doctor took one, crumpled it up, threw it at my face, and they all just laughed. Great for the whole room. He said, I was weak, I was tired, I could barely get out of bed. And I was so discouraged. One night, they brought in an old man, and they laid him in the bed just across from Mr. Nichols, and he was worse off than Doug was couldn't stand, couldn't feed himself, couldn't hardly move, just dreadfully sick. It was late in the night, and he heard a noise, and it woke, woke him up, and he looked across, and there was the old man, almost in kind of a fetal position. He was on his back, but he was holding his knees, and he was just rocking back and forth, saying something. You could, you could tell he was just laboring. Something was not right. After about 30 minutes, the old man just collapsed. He said, I didn't know what had happened, but I could hear him crying. Went back to sleep. The next morning, trying to be as ungraphic as I can, the next morning he woke up, and let's just say the rancid smell, he realized what had happened. The old man couldn't make his way to the restroom, and unfortunately, everything was soiled. Embarrassed. The nurses came and were so angry at him that they actually beat him in front of the entire room. He lay there beaten and bruised and ashamed. The next night, that same creaking noise woke Doug up. He knew what was going on. Doug Nichols said, so I decided I was going to help. He said, it took every bit of strength I had, but I dragged myself out of the bed, and I picked him up. He was so sick and anemic and everything else that he didn't weigh hardly anything. He said, I picked him up, and I dragged my feet as far as I could to get him to the little hole in the ground that was the restroom. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't do anything. He said, so I had to hold him, let him use the bathroom, pick him back up and get him to his bed. He said, when I laid him in his bed, the old man grabbed me. He said, I think what he was trying to say was thank you. And he kissed me on the forehead. I went back to bed, and they said he just collapsed. He was out for hours, didn't wake up to almost noon the next day because he had drained himself. But when he did wake up, nurses became coming to his bed. Can I have one of those pamphlets that you were trying to hand out? Please. Doctors, patients. He said, within a few hours, everything I had in those two suitcases was gone completely. He left. He had recovered. About two weeks, two weeks later, 23 patients, 17 nurses, and seven doctors all professed faith in Christ. All of them. Doug's literal words is said, what did I do? I didn't preach a great sermon or write a book. 
I just took an old man to the bathroom. Anybody can do that. Church, I'm not asking you to sell everything you have and go to India. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But sometime this week, and all the hustle and the bustle and the busyness, stop what you're doing and just love somebody. Buy them a meal, buy them a coffee, talk to them. Jesus didn't perform a miracle. He had a five-minute conversation. And he changed the life of this woman and possibly the whole town. Love is not a noun, it's a verb, and it takes action. What are you going to do this week to display the love of God in someone else's life? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Now, Lord, as this call to response comes, I pray that you would work on the heart of our church, work on my heart to help us love more. Because in doing so, we fulfill what you've called us to do. In your name we pray.